0: Opening your eyes to great art and architecture can become a highlight of a trip to almost anywhere in the world. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're taking a closer look at two places where the arts excel in reflecting a deeply rooted heritage. For instance, Cambodia's top visitor destination, Deep in the Jungle, guarantees to capture your imagination.
1: The whole city of Angkor has hundreds and hundreds of temples. It's everyone's archetypal lost city in the jungle.
0: Julian Brown points out for us the artistic highlights of Southeast Asia. And while in Dublin, you don't have to walk far to witness the matchless art treasures of
2: Ireland. Surprise yourself. Shock yourself. Walk out of Trinity having seen the Book of Kells, Walk up O'Connell Street, go into the Hugh Lane Gallery, and see the studio of Bacon, Francis Bacon,
0: the painter. We'll get you up close to the brilliant art scene in Ireland and in Southeast Asia. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and welcome to Travel with Rick Steves. Each time I go to Ireland, I really enjoy how common it is for a complete stranger to pull me into the art of a good conversation. And it often helps me sort out the cultural complexities as I explore the Emerald Isle. Coming up in just a bit, two guides to Ireland will clue us in on some of the uncommon artistic treasures of Ireland that are not to be missed. But first, let's look at how the arts of Southeast Asia provide an important framework for a visit to that corner of the world. Our guide is Julian Brown, English by birth. Julian's been living in France for many years, and he specializes in guiding visitors to both France and into Southeast Asia on his frequent excursions there. Julian, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It is really important in my travel experience to splice in an appreciation of the art to understand the cultures you're seeing, and it's easy for me to do that in Europe because my heritage is European. How do you get your brain around the art of Southeast Asia, and how does that
1: bring meaning to your travels? I suppose you need a basic, very basic knowledge at least, of Buddhism and Hinduism, which underlies so much of the religion of Southeast Asia. And as you say, most people who go into a Vietnamese or a Burmese temple or pagoda for the first time are astonished by all the different images they see around them, and it takes a long time to get your head around it.
0: I look at a lot of Asian travelers in Europe and I, I sort of feel sorry for them because they're surrounded by great Christian art, but I, I get a sense that they're having a tough time putting the pieces together. It's just like me when I'm in Southeast Asia. I'm surrounded in a in a, in a great temple by all this artistic richness. And for me, it's just richness, but I, I really don't understand it. So you'd
1: recommend boning up on Hinduism and Buddhism? Yes, I think so. And I think most... Tours you go on or guidebooks you read will give you at least the basics of understanding what a Buddha image is, what the different hand movements mean, and making sense at least of some of the images you see around you.
0: When you go to Europe, everybody knows Mona Lisa and Michelangelo and the Pantheon and David. Do you have the
1: equivalents in South Asian art? Not really in terms of individual pieces in that way. You have the huge, great ancient civilizations in Southeast Asia, the most famous being the Angkor, Wat temple complex, the great complex of Angkor built by the Khmer in what's in now Cambodia. Cambodia. Yeah. In Myanmar, in the central Myanmar, there's the extraordinary temple site of Pagan with over 2,000 temples. And in central Vietnam and southern Vietnam, there's the ancient civilization of Champa.
0: That's interesting. And in, in Indonesia, you got Borobudur. Indonesia, you have
1: Borobudur. And, and in the, Thailand,
0: you got Sukhothai.
1: Sukhothai and Ayutthaya.
0: I'm brand new to this, but for each of the countries in Southeast Asia, you've got one religious center that really is head and shoulders above the others in artistic grandeur.
1: Yes, these huge, great civilizations. But something to bear in mind is because of the nature of the climate in Southeast Asia, the monsoon climate, nothing perishable survives. So all of these civilizations built their sacred buildings of stone and brick. Those have survived the continual monsoon climate. The royal palaces, the homes, the shops, the daily life was built of perishable materials, of wood. Nothing has survived. So the wall coverings of all these sumptuous places are long gone. In some cases, the wall coverings are still there. If they were painted wall murals, for instance, Mm in Burma, in the site of Pagan, there are extraordinary wall paintings.
0: Now, is there any sense that art evolves through the ages? Like, when you look at European art, you've got, in ancient times, stiff, archaic, balanced, golden age, and then wild, jump-off-the-stage Hellenism. Then you got a break, and then you got stiff Gothic, balanced Renaissance, and wild Baroque. There's that cool evolution. When you look at Southeast Asian art, do you have some sort of a sense that they're following an evolutionary track?
1: Yes, your, your listeners can't see I'm smiling while you say that, because um, if I take one example, the ancient civilization of Champa in Vietnam was a Hindu-Buddhist civilization that really flourished between around the 5th century and the 15th. The French scholars who moved in in the 19th century and began to study this lost civilization did exactly what you've described, and they took, I think, the ancient Greek Roman model of an early art, great classical art and decline, and applied it to what happened in Champa. So there is certainly the beginnings of an art, a central extraordinary period, and then what seems like a decline. I've been smiling while you've been talking, because I tend to think that's too easy a reading. Uh-huh. Um, but people can see evolutions in the art, the art changes over time. And then in a related question, Do you have different kinds of art that sort
0: of hold hands as they walk through the ages, in the sense that we have Monet and Debussy working together in the Impressionist time, or Chopin and Delacroix working together in the Romantic age? Would you have different kinds of artists that would relate to each other
1: in certain stages in Asian art? Extremely difficult to answer until we get into the 19th and 20th centuries because, as I said, all the ancient art is almost solely religious. So it's like an island It's all sacred.
0: And then in the modern times, that would be just more of a global influence on these cultures, wouldn't it?
1: Yes. The the European influence that began from, let's say, the 16th century onwards in Southeast Asia began to have an enormous influence. All right,
0: let's talk about the art today of Southeast Asia. Is there a a sort of an international-style contemporary art that you can go to a great gallery in Bangkok or... Rangoon and, and uh, actually enjoy great contemporary
1: art. Yes, there are frightening artistic communities in all those places you've mentioned. Rangoon has a lot of galleries and a lot of artists.
0: Are they just um, knockoffs of the West? or Are they sort of not on necessarily?
1: Own? Some of them are Asian fusions. Mm-hmm. Some of them have been influenced by Western art. Some are developing their own styles. And there are specific art scenes. Hanoi has a very strong art scene with a lot of people now who are trying to invent their own styles or reinvent vietnamese styles how does the politics tie into this and in a lot of
0: cases historically when a society is kept down it, it muffles the creative
1: spirit and as soon as they're free they just go crazy it's happened a little bit in vietnam in in myanmar clearly it's not been possible politics and art are not mixed very much because people can't express things in the way they want a lot of art flourished out of the war in vietnam how so People painting grieving mothers, painting soldiers, painting guns. There's a lot of war-related art, and literature goes with it. People have begun to write novels about war experiences, some of them coming out a decade or so after the war, and some of them still coming out now. To what
0: degree do religious powers and political powers use art as propaganda in
1: Southeast Asia? Interesting question, but a difficult question, because... Because that drives so much art in Western New York Many of culture. the regimes, if we're talking about today, many of the regimes are, to a greater or lesser extent, repressive of religions. Okay. So the power of religions in many parts of Southeast Asia to use art as propaganda now is lessened. In the past, I suppose, I'd almost say all religious art has a connotation of propaganda. Like in the And West. I don't mean that negatively, no, but it's, it's, art it's art that's a message. It preaches. It speaks. Which and also, I should point out, most of the ancient art in Southeast Asia, there are no known artists. It's not like European art. So there's no
0: the, famous artists from the Middle Ages in no. uh, Southeast Asia?
1: People who created the extraordinary sculptures that you now see in the museum in Phnom Penh or the museum in... So Angkor
0: Wat, Pagan,
1: Borobudur, all these places, anonymous. We have names of the kings, but nobody else. Amazing. Before the Italian Renaissance, artists were working anonymously. They weren't signing artwork, so it's a similar thing. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about art in
0: Southeast Asia with Julian Brown. Okay, so we're going to Southeast Asia, and as we talked about, there's one great religious archaeological site that everybody needs to see, and it's sort of obvious. You don't need to have anybody to tell you to go to Sukhothai when you're in Thailand. But if you want to go to enjoy art in the museums, in the galleries, Julian, what galleries should we have on our list?
1: Well, in terms of museums, each of the great cities of Southeast Asia have fabulous museums. The National Museum in Bangkok, for anyone interested in art, is an essential place to go. So
0: I find all over the world. You're going to Mexico. Start in Mexico City, see the great museum there, and then the sites in the countryside. Yes, make a if more you sand. want
1: to see the sites like Sukuta, Ayutthaya, Angkor, then there are corresponding museums. Do
0: they move the great
1: surviving bits of those sites to the capital city museum for preservation? On the whole, yes. Not always. Most of the greatest sculptures of Angkor were taken by the French to Phnom Penh, to the capital, and so the most extraordinary museum in. Cambodia is still in Pompeii in the National Museum. In Vietnam, the French created museums in Saigon, in Hanoi, and a special museum in Da Nang in the center, which is a museum specifically devoted to the sculpture of ancient Champa. When I was in Tehran, in Iran, I went to the major museum in Tehran,
0: mm-hmm. assuming I'd find all the great artifacts of the Persian Empire and so on. And they said, if you want to see our best art, you've got to go to Europe. Is there much of that in Southeast Asia? Because it's got that colonial
1: heritage. Did the French take uh, a lot of stuff back to Paris? They did. Some great pieces from Angkor were taken, but later on the French scholars were enlightened enough to leave the most important pieces in Southeast Asia and bring less good pieces to Europe. I shouldn't say that because the creators of the French museums will kill me. There are also.
0: But that's very good m- news. You can see the the greatest hits uh, of Southeast Asia. Not not in always, Southeast but Asia. some of them. Some of them are there. This is probably a crass question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Uh, if you had to just go to one great
1: artistic site in Southeast Asia out of all these that we've talked about, which would be the the ultimate? Oh, you know, what? I want to say stay at home because I hate these sort of questions. I know. I suppose I have to say Angkor because was, it's gonna, so famous. Yeah. But I should point out that it's not Angkor Wat. Angkor Wat is one temple. The whole city of Angkor has hundreds and hundreds of temples. So it's a great temple complex in the jungle. Is that so great in part because it survives better than some of the, its counterparts? Uh, yes, it's great, I suppose, in terms of its size, in terms of the sort of romantic aura that surrounds its supposed discovery in the 19th century, although it hadn't really been lost, and the fact that it was covered in jungle. So it's everyone's archetypal lost city in the jungle. So it's the setting of it, it's the accessibility, it's now very easy to get there. And it's the sheer extent of it. If I went to your apartment in
0: Paris, would I see any South Asian art? You'd see a little bit. But I, it's all terribly cheap.
1: It all costs $10, and ah. you'd see you'd see a lot of wooden sculptures. From where? Water puppets from Vietnam, marionettes from Burma. There is a huge puppet tradition all over Southeast Asia, and this is perhaps one of the good things about tourism, that the puppet tradition, the water puppets in Vietnam, the marionettes in Burma, the shadow puppets in, in Java and Indonesia, were all beginning to die out as art forms. They have all been revised for tourism. Thanks to tourism. Thanks to tourism in many ways. Honest-to-goodness
0: art forms, not tacky stuff. Well, some of it's tacky tacky. tourist (laughs) stuff now, but it's (laughs) it's it's
1: one of the classic examples of the way tourism has kept alive an ancient tradition.
0: Julian Brown, you've whet my appetite for a little travel in Southeast Asia with a focus on the art. Good, Rick. Let's go together. All right. Thank you. Up next on Travel with Rick Steves, let's get to know the art scene on a small, sparsely populated island that's had a sizable impact on our world, Ireland. From the stone carving of ancient Celts to the modern works displayed in Dublin, there's a rich artistic tradition that's one of the real pleasures of getting acquainted with Ireland and the Irish. We're at 877-333-7425. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA the European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace, human rights, and democracy. Information available at euintheus.org. When I think of the contributions the Irish have made in the arts over the years, my initial thoughts go to literature and then to music. But Ireland's rich cultural and creative tradition includes the visual arts as well. Maybe it's tracing your finger inside a swirl that was carved into a stone by someone 5,000 years ago. Or viewing the painstaking labors of isolated monks who tended the fragile flame of literate life during Europe's dark ages. It might be an extravagance from colonial times, or a sophisticated mix of modern design with ancient symbols that adds a touch of grace to a contemporary building. All of this reflects the deep roots the arts have had in the Emerald Isle. To help us better appreciate the arts in Ireland, we're joined by Barry Maloney, an enlightened tour guide friend from County Cork, and by Roseanne Stringer, an art historian from the University of Kansas who's been guiding Americans around Ireland for more than a dozen years. Roseanne and Barry, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rick. Thanks for having us. Pleasure to be here. First of all, people do think about music and literature when it comes to the arts in Ireland. What would you advise if people want to get into the visual arts? Roseanne?
3: Well, the first thing I would do is, if you're going to start your tour in Dublin, I think that's where you want to base yourself and create a foundation for what you are going to experience throughout the rest of the country, because you're going to probably be going to a lot of archaeological sites and you're going to see them stripped down. And at the National Museum of Ireland, the Archaeological Museum on Kildare Street, you're going to see the the richness of metalwork and ecclesiastical objects as well as uh, the very functional objects that people wore and adorned themselves with during, let's say, antiquity, the Stone Age. So
0: when you travel around Ireland, you're going to see, as you said, a lot of stripped down stone sites that are just from a thousand years ago, basically.
3: Or even earlier. Even earlier? Yeah.
0: And the treasures of those civilizations are in the capital city of Dublin in what museum?
3: The National Museum of Ireland.
0: Okay, so that's a very good advice. In fact, for a lot of cultures, hit the big museum in the capital before going out into the countryside. very.: yeah,
2: I, I totally agree, Rick, with Rosanna. And uh, in fact, my favorite of art in Ireland is in the national museum. It's a small little gold boat. It's only about six, seven inches long. And it's from a thousand years ago, made out of uh, beaten sheet gold. Mm-hmm. and it's a, it's a miniature replica of a rowing boat complete with oars and oarlocks and a little sail and a little mast. And they, we believe it was a, an offering to a sea goddess. It was just amazing to see. And I think you you can really
0: surprise yourself in
2: Ireland. If you were to see this gold boat, you would assume it was a modern
0: work of art made right now. So the sophistication of a people a thousand years ago in Ireland will blow you away and you go to that National Museum. If my memory serves me correctly, the, the whole center of it is just... Gold, Yes, the gold of Ireland. And, and it, goes back of Ireland. To,
2: it goes back to over 2,000 years, over 3,000 years ago. Is that right? And there's a huge mystery as to where that gold came from. Huh. Because it, it didn't come from Ireland? Because we, we, believe me, if we had gold now, we'd be digging <laughs> for it, you know? <laughs> you, so so
0: there's, there's all that ancient gold in Ireland and nobody knows where it came
2: from. Well, recently there was some gold discovered actually in Crokepatrick. Right. In the 80s, 1980s. Okay. But the government refused to allow it to be mined because of its spiritual significance.
0: What is the famous brooch?
3: That would be the uh, the Tara Brooch. The
0: Tara Brooch,
2: mm-hmm. T-A-R-A, Tara
3: mm-hmm. Brooch.
0: Tell yeah, me about that. It's incredible.
3: Well, that dates from around 700, and it is an object of adornment, and it is exquisite. It's richly decorated with gold leaf, bronze, and I think there's uh, silver, and also there were probably precious and semi-precious jewels. Now, this would have been worn by someone of high rank within a community, but it signals that there were these incredibly skilled craftspeople who were, at the beck and call of those with position and power. Yeah, and very, and, and very, uh, yeah.
0: very rich elites that could afford this yeah. kind of art. And there.
3: and simply worn mm-hmm. to basically keep your tunic and uh, a garment underneath mm-hmm. together. So but
0: it's a, it's a pin to hold your, your tunic mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. When we think of the history of Ireland, I'm just always sort of inspired by the whole notion of the Isle of, of Saints and Scholars. What do we mean by that, Barry? Well,
2: basically, cut a long story short, it was that the Dark Ages didn't really uh, darken Ireland. We were just as bright as we ever were, you know? And that meant uh, Christianity survived, and the most famous example is the Book of Kells, which is just what you were talking about, that
0: gold, that fine gold work, but on paper. So, arguably, the best piece of art from what we popularly call the the Dark Ages of Europe, you know, between the fall of Rome Mm. and and the, the beginning of the High Middle Ages, in about the year 1000, the best piece of art you could make a case was done in Ireland, the Book of Kells.
2: Yeah, done between Ireland and Scotland. And it is believed it was done by monks who were trying to create a work that the normal people would believe
0: was the work of angels. And when you look at it, you can imagine it. And and, oh, yeah. and illuminated means, you know, of course, part of the the role of the monks was to transcribe, to write out these important books, mostly religious books, and then they would illuminate or decorate the uh, the title pages and the, and the chapter heads and yeah, so on. Yeah. And that was really quite an art form. And if you want to see these manuscripts, well, the ultimate is the Book of Kells. Roseanne, where do you see that?
3: Well, you want to go to Trinity College and you want to go to the old library. And I think that it's probably the most visited site in Ireland. It's ranked at least in the top five. And you want to, I think, allocate enough time so that you can take advantage of this introductory exhibition that enlarges, blows up the very, you know, small, maybe eight by 11 inch pages of these manuscripts. So you can see the intricacy of the detail and you can understand that this was something that these objects were not only precious and great lengths went to bring some very, very rich minerals and materials, the lapis lazuli for the blues that you'll see. But you also did not have the luxury of experimenting and making a mistake because you're working on vellum, you're working on calf skin. So the scribes and the artists had to be very, very skilled and adept at what they were doing. And you can get a sense of that in two videos and also in these enlarged images that adorn this introductory exhibition before you see it. I want
0: to echo that reminder to be patient, because when I go there, I'm just chomping at the bit to see the Book of Kells. But there's this wonderful exhibit beforehand that prepares you to enjoy the Book of Mm. Kells. And then when you actually see the Book of Kells, it's this precious book behind glass, just open up to two pages. And it's quite a tight little experience. But if you mm-hmm. enjoy that whole preparation, moving up to it. Yeah, it's a moment trick. You've got to slow down and live in the moment and
2: not just don't treat it like any other exhibit. Slow down. And uh, also what I'd like you to do in du- when you're in Dublin is surprise yourself, shock yourself. You know, take yourself from walk out of Trinity, having seen the Book of Kells, walk up O'Connell Street, go into the Hugh Lane Gallery and see the, the studio of Bacon, Francis Bacon, the, the painter and it's quite a, a sight to see. Have you seen that studio? No. It's uh, basically, when, when Bacon died, he left his studio to the Irish state. And remind us, who is Francis Bacon? Uh, he's a modern Irish artist. He's most famously known for his paintings of popes. Okay, so the, the, the point is
0: you can be surprised that Ireland is more than, uh, than old artifacts. Mm, You've got contemporary
2: art. And it's amazing what they did, because they, they took his studio, mm-hmm. and piece by piece, involving archaeologists, over 7,000 pieces, like tubes of paint open spilled onto the desk, they moved it to Dublin. Everything is labelled and in, in exactly the space as he left it.
0: Wow. Now we'll, the studios there—it's a work of art in itself. And walking around Dublin, you can get so many different dimensions of the of the art history of Ireland. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's, right a lot of people Street. don't realize that Dublin was the second city of the British Empire. Yeah, yeah. In the Georgian times. Yeah. In fact, I, I know all of us tour guides say "beyond the pale." We know that phrase. What do we mean when we say "beyond the pale," Barry?
2: Well, the Pale uh, the pale was a region around Dublin, which was, it got that name because it was there was a, a ditch. That was kind of the green zone, wasn't it? That was where it was safe and comfortable. Inside the Pale. And in, if you go beyond the Pale, you're going to have to pale, deal with these angry the, Irish people. Yeah, yeah, Look yeah. out.
0: Heaven sure. help you. Exactly. You're into where the chieftains ruled. Oh, boy. <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Roseanne Stringer and Barry Maloney about Irish art. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Hugh's on the phone in Salem, Oregon. Hugh, thanks for your call.
4: Uh, hi, Rick. How are you?
0: Doing well. Do you have a thought on Irish art?
4: Uh, yes. Uh, we uh, had the pleasure of uh, taking a tour in 2009, and when we were in Dublin, we went through the National Gallery. We went downstairs and saw the, the giant uh, painting of the, the Marriage of Strongwell and Aoife.
2: Hugh, it's a beautiful painting, isn't
4: it? Oh, it's fantastic. Amazing. And it was a good background for uh, learning more about the history of the time, and I, I was wondering if you could comment a little bit more on on that painting and, and its significance in the ancient history of Ireland.
2: I'd be delighted, Hugh. It's the uh, first thing that struck me when I first saw the painting is the sheer size of it.
0: What's the name of this painting again?
2: Uh, the Marriage of Aoife and Strongbow. Marriage of
0: Aoife and Strongbow in Dublin's National Gallery. Yeah. Okay. Yeah,
2: in the, and the painter's Daniel MacLease, another Corkman. Uh, oh and yeah. uh, I'm from Cork as the well. neighbour of his. neighbour of mine, yeah. And it's about, I think it's about 10 feet high, maybe 16, 17 feet wide. And it's a marriage taking place on a battlefield. Now, there's a dramatic subject for a a painting, if ever there was one. And in terms of its its historical significance, it symbolizes the first steps of England into Ireland. You may have often heard people say that England ruled Ireland for 800 years. And when people are talking about that, the beginning of that time, they're talking about the Normans. The first Norman to enter Ireland was Strongbow. He was invited in by a chieftain, trying to get the edge on his rival. And in part of the deal, he promised his daughter Efa's hand in marriage to Strongbow. Of course, Strongbow married
0: Efa and became the the ruler. So the Irish chieftain married into the Normans, basically. Yeah, yeah. Basically. So he was he was corrupted,
2: uh, or just seduced. Well, corrupted to extent. Well, and seduced. But after him, then flowed thousands of more Normans into
0: Ireland. So that is very poignant from an Irish point of view, introducing 800 years of British. Uh, Influence, influence. Let's put it politely. So it was a
2: huge turning point, and one of this, one of the features of the painting you'd pick up is a harp, right to the left of the painting is a harp, and if you look closely at it, you see the strings are broken. Oh, and he wanted to symbolize there that the harp usually is played to celebrate Irishness and the Irish spirit, and when the strings were broken, it was showing that this marriage, even though it was a happy event, was. You know, it was a, bad,
0: a bad omen, or a bad of some omen, trouble.
2: But of course, the painter was a romantic nationalist, and the real wedding took place in a cathedral. So he was, you know, putting it on the battlefield. Speaking of that harp, talk about the importance of the harp to the Irish people, and when you're in Dublin, where you would see uh, the most historic harp. Oh yeah, the harp. Well, the harp in that painting, actually painted in the mid 1800s, is based on the one in Trinity College called the Brian Brew harp.
0: And, and that it, goes back 500 years or something?
2: Yeah, it goes back uh, even further, I think, about 700 years. Okay. And it's one of, the, one of the three unique Irish instruments.
0: And that actual harp survives to this day. It's in, it's yeah. in remarkable yeah, shape. Yeah, it's
2: amazing to see. And you'll see it if you're going to see the Book of Kells that we just mentioned. Right. Uh, you'll also see the harp upstairs in the long room.
0: And the, you'll in, see it if you go anywhere in Ireland on the back of the coin. Oh, yeah, same, same so this, harp. This harp is a is a powerful thing. We've I, even got it on the euro, the euro coin. On the euro coin. And uh, I think it, it frustrated a lot of uh, monarchs in London, didn't it? I mean, they even outlawed the harp. And uh, if you look at
2: uh, the biggest business in Ireland, Guinness. What do you think of?
0: That's right. The harp. The harp. That's right. They've got the harp on there.
2: And a of genius putting it on the glass. When the pint is being pulled, you see the white settle into black and the harp comes up, you know?
0: So you've got to watch that harp as it changes, as the beer fills the glass. Yeah and then your Irish spirit swells. I can see you're uh, torsing
2: for a Guinness there.
3: <laughs> if I could just say something, too, about the uh, the painting, which is subtle in many ways about this, basically a suppression of Irish culture, but Strongbow is standing on a symbol of the Celtic cross, which is, for many people, an icon of what they expect to see in graveyards and monastic sites throughout Ireland. He's standing
0: on a Celtic cross. Yes. That's so a powerful symbol. It
3: very much is. So I think, as Barry was saying, MacLeese is definitely taking not just a historical image and building it up, but he's he's basically making a political statement And when about, was this
0: painting done, roughly?
3: Around 1880, I think, wasn't it? So this it? is when
0: Ireland is struggling for in modern hoping. terms. It's sort of stirring things up to break away from... It was feeling its oats. Absolutely, the and, hope and for And ready to go rule. for it. And 40 years after there, they would have their independence, at least the Republic. Absolutely. So right here within the fr- frame of a few blocks, we've got the harp, the Book of Kells, this great painting that sort of talks about the uh, initiation of British control of Ireland. Powerful sightseeing right in Dublin. Hugh, thanks for your call.
4: Thanks a lot, Rick.
0: Yeah, take care. Enjoy your show. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're exploring Irish art with Roseanne Stringer and Barry Maloney. Our phone number, 877-333-7425. John's on the phone in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania.
4: John, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi, Barry. Hi, Roseanne. Hi, John. Hi, John. I I just want to tell um, all your listeners that the highlight every time we go to Dublin is to go to the National Gallery and to uh, look at Caravaggio's The Taking, which of course is also known as Lost Painting. And it's a wonderful story about how it was uh, found in a Jesuit dining hall, and having gone to Georgetown University, I have a pro-Jesuit stance.
0: <laughs> so tell us more about that. What's the name of the painting again?
4: It's called the Taking or the Taking of Christ. It was made by Caravaggio. Right, and it was lost. I mean, you know, Caravaggio is quite a character. I mean, you know, he had a one of the popes was one of his patrons, but he was also a drunkard. He was a brawler, is a womanizer. They even think he might have been a murderer. And um, he does this beautiful painting that just disappears for several hundred years. And Jonathan Haar wrote a book on it called The Lost Painting. It's just fascinating. And now it hangs proudly in the National Gallery.
2: Isn't it like a, a scene out of Scorsese?
3: that painting?
4: Yes. And also Caravaggio, being the devil that he is, painted himself in the painting.
0: Oh, true! Yeah, he's on which on he the right did hand. frequently, right? So that's an interesting topic. Just great masters from European art in Ireland. We don't think about that too much. Roseanne, right. If you're if you're going to Ireland, uh, what would you what would you?
3: Oh, I would definitely include a visit to the National Gallery, which is right. Within Striking Distance of the National Museum of Ireland. And Uh it has an exquisite collection of European painting, not only Caravaggio, but if I can also say another rarity, a painting by Vermeer. There's a Rembrandt. There's Goya. There's Rubens. There's Van Dyck, Monet, Picasso. Wow. And if you want to immerse yourself in what we would think of as, let's say, um, the sort of Georgian... Colonial painting. You have an incredible collection of images that tend to romanticize the British occupation of, oh, done of by, Ireland. Done
0: by uh, done by done Ang- by Anglo-Irish. Yeah, Anglo-Irish. Anglo-Irish in artists. Dublin, probably living the privileged life.
3: Absolutely, and it's free, and it is so accessible, and um, it isn't overwhelming in terms of its mm. size.
0: Hey, John, did you get out of Dublin and into the West?
4: Yeah, we uh, go to Galway every year because we're big Steve Earle fans. Oh, nice Galway,
2: girl. <laughs> You know that song, The
0: Galway
4: I, Girl? I've heard it 50, 60 times in concert.
0: Oh, nice. Wow,
4: nice. It, and Steve makes uh, Galway his second home when he's not living in New York now. And we try to go every year for just the music and the, uh, the people, you know.
2: Great connection. And, and one character I'd like to lead you out of Dublin, if you like, is Harry Clark. He's okay. Ireland's foremost stained glass artist. Mm-hmm. And therefore, his work is scattered all throughout Ireland, England, even in Europe. And uh, he's, he's famous for his bright
0: blue and vibrant reds. Incredible example of that in, in Dingle, right? In Dingle, yeah, yeah. You're in Dingle, which is such a rustic little fishing community. Yeah. You step into this church and you go, in, and it's just a, it's a cathedral of incredible glass. From what, what age was that? Uh, that would be roughly 100 years ago. 100 years in... ago. What, what, what would he call that period?
3: Well, he's normally characterized as Art Deco, but I sometimes hate labels because I think his work is so unique. I mean, he elongates his figures, and as Barry said, he uses incredibly rich, saturated colors. But what he incorporates is an emotional content in his depiction of the faces. And I've had people who've gone into the chapel of the D-shirt, which was the presentation nun's convent in Dingle, at one time. And they have come out in tears. They yeah. have been so moved by that emotional
2: uh, feeling
3: it. that comes through in his depiction of these figures.
2: And he's a character that's pure Irish because there was two sides to him. There was his church work and his secular work. And the Irish state commissioned him to paint uh, his, which was going to be his masterpiece, called the Geneva Window for the United Nations Geneva Building. And it was like a scene out of a movie there was a there was the moment when all the politicians gathered around the unveiling of this stained glass work Mm -hmm. the curtains dropped and kind of polite coughs and and it it never made it to Geneva because he depicted works from Joyce and uh, O'Casey drunken Irish nudity and you know the real honest real life real honest life and guess where that stained glass work is now University of Florida Mm. my goodness so right,
0: John thanks for your call thank you very much Okay. take care thanks John There's a lot more to encounter of the arts in Ireland. Barry and Roseanne in just a moment. Our phone number is 877 333 7425. And share your favorite artistic finds from Ireland with us on our website message board in the radio section at ricksteves.com. We're exploring the remarkable variety of the arts that enriches a thoughtful traveler's time in Ireland today on Travel with Rick Steves. Our focus is the visual arts, and our guides are Roseanne Stringer and Barry Maloney. It's interesting, when you're traveling to Ireland, you kind of have to divide what is Georgian and what is English from the overlords and what is really indigenous art all over the place. You go you go to, even to the west and Macross House or something like that, elegant architecture... But it's it's English more than Irish, right, Roseanne? Absolutely. So if you really want to get indigenous Irish art, what's the glory days of that, and, and where do you go?
3: I tell people when I'm traveling out in County Kerry in southwestern Ireland that the single most beautiful building in Ireland is the Galrus Oratory.
0: To paint a picture for people who haven't been there, it's perfect stonework. Mm. It's like watertight. It's without any mortar, I believe. It's stacked, uh, how many centuries old would you say it is?
3: It is from around, I think, the year 800. It's
0: 1,200 years old. Mm-hmm. It's a church with a with a nave, and it stands there in the lonely, weather-beaten, God-forsaken, westernmost True. part and, of Ireland.
2: And the miracle of it, Rick, is it was built entirely without mortar. Yeah. And it's like an upturned boat.
0: It's a miracle, really, that it still stood all those years. It stood all those years, and that's what Roseanne is talking about. That's where you get this sense of the, the strength of the artistic and cultural community in Ireland, back when Europe was just rutting in the mud.
3: Absolutely, and here, this was the sort of centerpiece of a very, very small monastic community that might have held maybe only 15 or 20 members of that community and one of probably dozens of little monastic sites that are just within a few miles distance from one another on the peninsula. And then we
0: can get ourselves in this medieval mindset. With all the chaos on the continent, the sort of the conscientious objectors of the darkness of, of the Dark Ages of Europe moved as far west as they could, and then they did what hermit monks like to do. A hermit monk, by definition, just wants to get away from it all. It can be out in the mudflats of Mont Saint-Michel, it could be in a desert somewhere, or it can be on a rock off the coast of Ireland.
2: True, Rick. Out in Skellig Michael, yeah. on the west coast off the Ring of Kerry, those monks, it's believed, wanted to literally follow the Bible and take the gospel to the ends of the earth and commune with nature.
0: So in our travels, we can plan to see a lot of these sites from the age of saints and scholars, but also we can remember that Ireland has had a tumultuous 20th century and a terrible struggle with its sectarian uh, issues, and there's a lot of art surviving
2: today on the streets that you'll see. Well, in Derry and Belfast, you can really walk into history. You can do amazing walking tours up there, but one of the amazing places is going to the bog site where Bloody Sunday took place in the early 70s. A lot of... uh, Irish civil rights uh, campaigners were shot on that day. And to commemorate it, there's these murals, political murals, which tell the story.
0: But they're on the sides of buildings, so they're the size of a building. Yes, yeah, so you've got a positive conclusion coming out of this, but you've got a whole generation of art that is taking symbols of the Catholic and the Protestant side. What symbols do you see on these, on these murals? Well, just to generalize, in Belfast, you'll really see the divide.
2: So in Belfast, in the nationalist areas, you'll see a lot of green. You'll see a lot of, unfortunately, some uh, terrorist figures wearing balaclavas, holding guns and, you know, fighting for a free Ireland. Then yeah. on the on the unionist side, you'll see uh, Union Jacks and uh, also masked figures, unfortunately, almost held up as heroes, modern day heroes. But today things are changing in Belfast. You'll also see murals depicting the Titanic and the, the pride of Belfast. One of the best uh, public works you'll see, which, you know, brings the two sides together, is one in Derry called The Hands Across the Divide.
0: Huh. Uh, Describe that for us.
2: It pictures two youngsters, one from the nationalist side, one from the unionist side, reaching out their hands towards each other. And it must be around an inch of space between the two. Is
0: Is that a hopeful sign?
2: Oh, very hopeful. It's showing the peace process and the whole peace in Ireland. I'm sure you've seen that in your visits to Ireland, how things have completely changed. Belfast is becoming, and Derry are becoming the new, the next Killarney, you know. Really? And really embracing tourism and embracing their story and history and their future.
3: Barry and I have had the great pleasure of conversing with two of uh, probably just a handful of mural painters who've been working for decades in the bog side. Y- yes, we see scenes wait, wait a, scenes a minute. Of w- where's the bog side? The bog side is in the city center of Derry. or it's in, within. So this is
0: a very hard-fought town during the struggles, during the troubles.
3: This was the flashpoint the flash The flashpoint. And you've been talking to mural
0: artists who were painting highly politicized wall murals. Yes. And now what is their outlook?
3: Well, they have even personally embraced the idea of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. So you see Mother Teresa and John Hume and Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King as symbols that really promote peace. And I'm not saying that their earlier work is meant to incite any kind of anger or resistance. They wanted to capture for all time those vivid and horrific images, because the story needed to be told. But I think it's very powerful now that they're drawing on Martin Luther King and Mother Teresa as symbols of the hope for the future. So
0: they've gone from Che Guevara and Geronimo to Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi. That's Uh, very hopeful. Yes. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been exploring Irish art with Barry Maloney and Roseanne Stringer. I'd like you each to share one piece of advice to help people better appreciate the art and through that, better appreciate the Irish people. Roseanne?
3: My favorite object is the Arda Chalice, which dates from around the year 700 in the National Museum of Ireland. And I love it for the simplicity of the design, but the fact that it incorporates what is a, I think, an iconic uh, knot pattern that we see in a variety of different styles in Irish art, which signifies eternity and continuity.
0: The name of that chalice again?
3: Arda, A-R-D-A-G-H.
0: Beautiful. very. And
2: my favourite work is uh, by Jack B. Yates, the brother of William Butler Yates. Uh, It's a modern work, uh, expressionistic. It's it's kind of, the colours are flowing and it's called The Liffey Swim. And it's a picture, a simple, simple subject. It's showing people swimming in the Liffey, the Liffey River. Liffey River, the main river in Dublin City. And what I love most about it is the blues, the rich, dark blues of the sea and the river and also the light, bright blue in the sky. The way it goes from the dark blue at the base in in the Liffey up to the sky, looking towards the future. This is where Ireland is right now, and our art expresses that. We're looking towards the future.
0: It's a hopeful time when you can stop being burdened by the past and look to a hopeful future. Very positive time. Barry Maloney, Roseanne Stringer, thank you very much.
3: Thank you, Rick. Thank
0: you. Thank you. We've got a little extra time on today's Travel with Rick Steves to check in with listeners who've contacted us recently at 877-333-7425 or by email at radio at ricksteves.com. Tell us about a kindness you've found in your travels abroad. Sometimes it's the little acts of friendship that make for the very best souvenirs from our travels. Jenny's on the line in Carthage, Missouri. Jenny, thanks for your call.
5: Well, thank you for taking my call.
0: You have some uh, memory of some uh, kindness of strangers that you've enjoyed in your
5: travels. Yes, I do. Uh, My husband and I had the opportunity to travel to Denmark in the early 1980s, so this is quite some time ago. Being young and very brave, we decided to rent a car and drive ourselves, and we took a ferry from one point to another. As we got on the ferry and began our journey, we realized that there was no one on the whole ferry that spoke any English, and we did not know any Danish. And so we're making our way with gestures and you know, holding out the money and letting them take the appropriate coins and things like that. And the people were very kind to us, but my, my fond memory is that there was a cafeteria where you would go through a cafeteria line that's very familiar to all of us, and choose your food items and your drink items, and then there were tables and people sat and ate. And as I was going through the cafeteria line, I put a a bottle of bottled water on my tray, and someone without any words whatsoever just slipped an empty glass onto my tray. (laughs) And I've always assumed that that person did not want me to embarrass myself (laughs) by drinking from the bottle. (laughs) That's so sweet. (laughs) That is my memory. That's so
0: low-key and thoughtful and just, here, use a glass, okay?
5: (laughs) Here's a glass. This is what you need. I
0: love it when people save you from being kind of gross in in a foreign culture and they just kind of go, oh, no, we do it this way here.
5: Yep, yep, they do, they do. We also enjoyed on that trip watching a child who was probably six eating her hamburger with her knife and fork because the Danes were eating sandwiches with knives and forks. Everything is
0: very orderly in Denmark. You feel like you live in a jute box, you know?
5: Yeah, yes, they are very orderly. And we had a, a very funny memory of people at the hotel trying to eat uh, cornflakes with a fork who were unfamiliar with cornflakes wow, <laughs> at funny. the breakfast. So it's fun to observe these. And I,
0: I got to turn it around and teach my little cousin in Norway how to use chopsticks. He had never before seen or used chopsticks. And mm-hmm. uh, that was striking to me because that's so commonplace here in the United States. But uh,
5: Well, where you live, in the Northwest. Yeah, that's uh, right. Here in Missouri, uh, not so much. Not so much, huh? Okay, <laughs> no. well, we all have our
0: different exposures, don't we? Yes, sure. You could save me from being gross if I ever come down to Missouri by making oh, okay. sure I have well, if, cultural if, faux pas.
5: Here, um, we would probably take you for a barbecue, and you simply need a, a good supply of napkins. <laughs>
0: <laughs> a good, Yeah, I bet. Well, that's uh, probably the mark of a good barbecue.
5: Yep, yep. The other thing that I wanted to say, and wanted, the story that I wanted to relate is actually much more important to uh, my family and myself. I have been a student of family history for almost 30 years now, trying to find where my relatives have come from to America. Through many connections and the kindness of a history teacher in the Czech Republic, we have been able to visit the actual home where my immigrant family left from to come to the United States about 140 years ago. And the strangers who live in this house now invited us in for tea. they were just delightful. And we visited in 2006, and huh. then we were able to visit again in 2009. Again, they insisted when they heard that we were coming back that we come again for some tea and... and
0: Now, this is a small town in the Czech Republic?
5: small town, Duceos, a small town about 70 miles east and a little south of Prague. Very impressed as I uh, record the movement of of my Czech family, who came first to Wisconsin, then down to Kansas, and eventually homesteaded in Oklahoma, Hmm. where I was born. And uh, the numbers of Czechs who came Mm -hmm. because of the the great strife that they've had Mm -hmm. in their country over time. And when we visited in 2006, they were uh, very eager to ask us about our opinions of how they were doing after their uh, Velvet Revolution and uh, very pleased with the freedom that they had. Oh. Probably the immigration out of of their country has been great over time because they've had so much oppression.
0: Although I've had friends in the Czech Republic tell me that fewer of them emigrate than from their neighboring countries because they just cannot imagine not being next to the beer that is so good made
6: right there. (laughs) The real Budweiser. (laughs)
0: The Budweiser.
6: (laughs) The real Budweiser. They don't
0: want to leave that. It's just just never quite as good as uh, getting that in the Czech Republic.
5: And the, the impression that I had when we visited was that I felt very much at home, and people revere other people so much, and people who who were not in our, our family line precisely, but who were friends and neighbors and who were from this small village, would cry when they saw us and when we came to visit mm. them. They were so touched that we wow. had come from America to see the homeland Hmm. and the homeland is very important Yeah, Uh, very important and I really had this sense of belonging there even though I'd never been there how
0: long ago did your family leave that town in the Czech Republic
5: 140 years ago 1867 isn't
0: isn't Mm -hmm. that beautiful that you've got that connection and now you can go back there and and feel that connection with the uh, people who live in your family home 140 years later
5: isn't that something
0: that's great Jenny thank you so much for your call
6: You're very welcome. Take care. Bye now. Bye-bye.
0: And Maggie's on the line in Mount Airy, Maryland. Maggie, thanks for your call.
6: Thanks for taking my call. appreciate it.
0: You bet. You had an interesting uh, 9-11 experience.
6: I did. Back in 2001, a few months after I moved from Manhattan to uh, to Houston, I found myself in Tokyo for business. And late one night, alone in my hotel room, watching CNN, um, that's where I saw the trade towers go down. And on the 12th, um, the office where I was working closed, um, and State Department advised all of us, that the Americans that were there, they suggested that we avoid um, known American hangouts. So feeling a bit helpless and fretful, um, I set out to distract myself um, by seeing the city. Um, so I wandered around until I came to Sensoji Temple. And Sensoji is a rather sprawling compound uh, with various statues and offering sites. And when I made it to the main hall, I paused because I was trying to figure out how the offering for a fortune kind of worked when this older Japanese gentleman came up with a really big smile and he came up to help me. So I, I pulled the paper scroll out and he translated for me that I had gotten a small fortune. And uh, he told me that was a very good uh, fortune. Um, Big fortune is better, he said, but uh, small fortune is very good, very good. And he asked me, just out of regular course, he asked me where I was from. And when I explained that I had recently moved to Texas from New York City, he took my hand and he he looked in my eyes very caringly and he said, I'm so sorry to hear what's happened to your country. And without much thought on it, I, I, I said thank you and I asked him where he was from. And he said, I'm from Nagasaki. And I hesitated a bit in, with his response, and I returned his look, and I, I said, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry with what Nagasaki went through. And from that point forward, he, he, he hung with me. You know, we, uh, he, he walked with me through the temple grounds, and he told me that he was a young boy in Nagasaki during the bombing and that afterwards, you know, he described that many people got sick and some died, um, and he said it was not very good, uh, but he did say that the end of the war was a very good thing. And as I was talking to him, I had to ask him how he he come to speak English so well. And it turned out he had studied in the U.S. on a post-war student exchange, and he had visited um, somewhat small, obscure southern towns mostly, uh, including a stop in Texas, a small town in Texas where he told me he experienced, of all things, chip flipping, you know, that that, uh, creative and entertaining uh, activity with cow poop. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So uh, he was just a delightful man. He's uh, he's a spry, older gentleman, just delightful. And uh, he spent a fair bit of time with me. We walked around the city, went on a river tour, and he he pointed out different sites, which I remember many of the sites, but really it's his stories that that I remember and Mm. You know, to this day, uh, I hold a great deal of fondness for mm. this experience and for this gentleman from Nagasaki.
0: He lived through the uh, atomic bombing of Nagasaki. He did. And they lost 80,000 people on that oh, my day. My goodness. 80,000. We lost 3,000, tragic, on 9-11, but he could really uh, comfort somebody who had been, you know, from a town that was also hit very strong. Wow.
6: I mean, I'm so grateful, and it was for the distraction, but it was also, you know, he gave me a bit of hope that, you know, there's great, there's wonderful human things that come out of great tragedy, and he was just a wonderful presence. We talked a little bit about what it was like um, for him in Nagasaki, and I talked a little bit about who I was worried about back at home, um, but it was really just the, genuine, the genuineness of him, you know, just being this delightful man. It was quite wonderful.
0: Well, Maggie, as we think back on 9-11, thank you very much for sharing your experience on September 11, 2001 in Tokyo. Well, thank
6: you very much for letting me share.
0: Okay, bye now. Take care.
4: Bye. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick. Rick has also voiced guided walking tours to many of Europe's most popular sites. Look for the Rick Steves Audio Europe package on iTunes and at ricksteves.com. Join us again next week for more Travel with
0: Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org.
3: Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe
0: researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. And his country, city and snapshot guides cover what to see, where to eat and where to sleep for every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.